Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. This is Bram Stoker and Elgin Award-nominated author Jessica McHugh. And I'm hoping you'll join me May 26th through the 28th in Hunt Valley, Maryland, where I'll be a guest of honor and the featured poet at Horror on Main. This convention is like a love letter to the horror community with writers, artists, actors, directors, pretty much anything you could want if you love the horror genre as much as I do. So come on down to Hunt Valley Memorial Day weekend and I'll see you at Horror on Main. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. From the host of This Is Horror Podcast comes a dark thriller of obsession, paranoia, and voyeurism. After relocating to a small coastal town, Brian discovers a hole that gazes into his neighbor's bedroom. Every night she dances and he peeps. Same song, same time, same wild and mesmerizing dance. But soon Brian suspects he's not the only one watching and she's not the only one being watched. They're watching is The Wicker Man meets Body Double with a splash of Suspiria. They're Watching by Michael David Wilson and Bob Pastorella is available from thisishorror.co.uk, Amazon, and wherever good books are sold. Hi, I am Erica T. Worth, author of the indigenous literary horror uh, novel White Horse, which is out now with Flatiron Macmillan. And it is about Carrie, who is an urban Indian woman who loves heavy metal and loves horror, but despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And when her uh, her cousin Debbie discovers an ancient bracelet of her mother's and uh, Carrie touches the bracelet, um, her mother's ghost begins to haunt Carrie and a monster invades her dreams. And Carrie decides that she needs to find out what happened to her mother after all. Um, and some of the inspiration for this novel is urban Indian life in Denver, Colorado. And it's also just, you know, my love of heavy metal and horror, which was something where I went to school in Idaho Springs, people loved. And it's also a love song to old Denver. Hey, it's Well Red Beard. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I'm back full time on my channel. I would love for you to come over and subscribe just search well red beard on youtube um i delve deep into horror i've spent the last three years uh, reading a ton of independent small press horror there's treasure to be found there and i go out there and find it for you I, i'm not afraid to tell you the books that aren't great while telling you the books that are great i don't break hearts or hurt feelings but if a book doesn't work for me i will tell you that and i'll tell you why i'm on a new mission now to to go back and dig into some great horror from the 80s and 90s. I'm working my way through Robert McCammon's books. I'm going to look at all of Peter Straub's work. I'm going to do uh, Brian Keene. I've got aspirations to go back and do J.F. Gonzalez. A lot of the greats. So you have a good idea of where to start. I have a video up for J.F. Gonzalez's Survivor, so you can see what all the fuss is about. I recently read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, so you can see what all the fuss is about. Uh, I just want you to come over and subscribe. I'm trying to grow the thing. I appreciate you taking a look at it. This is Well Read Beard. I hope you're enjoying all your books as much as I am. If not, you're reading the wrong damn books. And it's nice that the bald men have uh, the majority stake in an episode for once. No, for once. <laughs> well, I, I, just minutes before uh, before I logged on here, my my grandson, who's 11, 
uh, he just got glasses today and, and his mom sent me a picture of here he is with the glasses. And I said, I said that, no, my wife texted, oh, he looks very handsome. And then I texted back saying he needs to shave his head if he wants to be really handsome. So <laughs> not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. But. I'll catch up eventually. But right now it's just this nice red color that it has been my whole well, life. You, and I want to keep it as long as possible. You got some on top. Mine, um, see, I mean, I like, patchy and stuff for a long time, and and then, but it was like COVID, and I just went, well, what the fuck? It grows off. Let's see. And I, I mean, I, I, I had a full professor beard, and I thought, yeah, let's let's shave that off. And I shaved it off in stages, like on Facebook, and I did like like down to the long sideburns and the goatee and then I shaved the sideburns off and then I shaved the goatee off and then I shaved it all off and and man and I, and I did this posting it and you wouldn't believe how freaked out people got my my fans got on Facebook and they're <laughs> screaming and wailing and I'm going guys you know it grows back in like a week or so right you know if I just stop shaving it'll come back and <laughs> So on a on a whim, I just I shaved my head too. It was like a, a year ago, maybe two years ago, Christmas. Um, you wear well, just a year ago. So I I just went, oh, what the heck? And we we did it, and and I went, you know, I I like this, and and I think <laughs> it looks pretty good. And you know what the real kicker is for me is I love to go uh, camping and hiking a lot. And the ball just really works for camping and hiking because I, <laughs> I hate having like greasy hat hair and sweaty hair and all kinds of stuff. And this way I can feel comfy out in the out in the woods for a day or two and not feel like I desperately need a shower. So I absolutely get that. Um, yeah. And any questions? guys? <clears throat> Can't talk. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's bad if you're a podcast host and you can't talk. So, we'll... Welcome to Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough. Unfortunately, today, Brennan couldn't make it, but we do have a guest host, um, more handsome. What? Who said that? TJ Tranchel. Welcome aboard, sir. Say hello. Hello, Dead Headspace followers. I am happy to be here. Happy to fill in. And uh, we're talking to a guy that has written more books and probably most of the guests that I've had on. I guess Joe Lansdale would be the only competitor here. Uh, that is Kevin J. Anderson. Say hello, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Or, you know, you set that up. You knew it was <laughs> But Joe's That's a friend what... of mine, but I I think if we're going to stack up our books and hit each other with them, I'm going to kick his butt because even <laughs> Joe, even Joe can't. I've got 175 books, I think. So, <sighs> But I love Joe's stuff. I mean, I've been writing him fan letters for 30 some years, so... He's a great guy, and I love his love his uh, books. 
he's he's hilarious and that's actually how he replies so that's pretty funny um <laughs> what got you into horror uh, let's see i when i was a little kid i used to watch monster movies that uh, see i was in a small town of wisconsin and everybody else around me like were Badgers fans and Packers fans. And I was this nerdy, skinny kid with a bad haircut and glasses, and I didn't get sports at all. So I would watch like the creature features and the I'd stay up late on Friday nights and watch the old black and white, whatever the the weekly monster movie was. And and yes, I'm saying I'm old because what you what most people don't realize is you didn't used to be able to just go watch whatever movie you wanted whenever you wanted to. You had to look at the TV listings and go, oh, I better stay up till two in the morning because House of Dracula is on and I've never seen that. And um, I mean, you didn't even have video recorders to to do it. So you had to watch what was on. And I watched lots and lots and lots of uh old horror movies. And I, I was just a full on science fiction, fantasy, horror geek. I read comics. I loved reading the, the creepy and eerie and Vampirella comics. And um, so, I, I mean, I loved ghost stories and, and in my mind, I mean, I, I know there's, there's specific differences between the genres, but to me, I wanted to read anything that was not normal life in Wisconsin. So I'm, I read The Hobbit. I read The the Stand. I read um, Something Wicked This Way Comes was one of my favorite mm. books when I was uh, I know, like 12 years old or something like that. And I just just got into it. I, I, I honestly read the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe. There was like a six volume set in the library <laughs> and I went through all of them and uh, got a little bit older and I read all of the H.P. Lovecraft stuff and and um it just, I, I love, I love monsters and that's how we kind of got started. So the movies came before the reading for you then? Um, yeah. I mean, cause I was watching the movies when I was like six and I would, I would read, you know, I started getting books when I was eight or nine and stuff. I would go to the um, the library and I would just eat up everything that was science fiction or fantasy and and but the movies were on every week and it was the sci-fi cinema was on Saturday afternoon and creature features was on Friday night and that was kind of like my weekly that's talk about working for the weekend well that's what I would be looking <laughs> forward to is the Friday night and, and my my parents would let me stay up because the the creature features I think it started at like like 10 30 at night and then it was over at around midnight and so that was my treat was to watch the the old movies i, just I like your parents i just noticed bond tj <laughs> is a poster the original twilight zone show which i'm a, I, I love that show and i i would put all the money in the world that you're a big fan of it too kevin oh man i used to just especially when i think it was like in the afternoons uh, that the old rerun stations used to run Twilight Zone every afternoon. And so I got to just go through the big marathons. And and I mean, I don't know how many episodes there were, but there got to have been hundreds, right? I would uh, think so. I don't know. 156. And, uh, okay. 156. Okay. And, and, 
And of course, some of them were kind of corny, but some of them just really affected me. And I, I remember a handful of like my really favorite ones. I just went, I didn't see that coming. This is great. And and um, I hope people still watch them, except for us, like old classic people, because I mean, they're a half hour long and Rod Serling was like the best narrator ever. And oh, then, my God, and yeah. each one of those, those uh, shows. And then I remember uh, night gallery, which was his, his follow-on show. And I used to love that one too. And, and, um, but just so many twists and you could tell such a cool story in, well, I, I don't know what the running time was like 22 minutes or something like that. Um, and just like, bang, bang, bang. And it was great. There was twist endings and there were funny ones and there was really creepy ones. And, and when, cause I always wanted to be a writer and just watching those twilight zone stories over and over again, just, it, it was like giving me all the junk food I could want. I mean, constantly skidding <laughs> ideas. It's going to ask. The good news that. is that there are younger generations still watching it. So one of the reasons I have that twilight zone poster is, um, I teach at a community college, and I use the Twilight Zone as the basis for my English 101 class. So oh. I make all the students watch as many episodes as possible and then write about them. So I'm doing my part to make sure other people still watch them. So. Yeah, well, we're all, we're all looking right in, in your background there, TJ. I see your, your original <laughs> King Kong poster there off of your shoulder, well, in a little framed print. And I see yep. Michael Connolly, the poet, which is the last oh. book that I read a month ago. So <laughs> I just finished it. So um, I, I think we, I hope you like beer, because if we shared a beer, we'd have a lot to, to uh, have a conversation. We, we would have a good time. And that's one of the reasons I'm here is because we're having a good time and this is fun, right? Is that Thomas Harris's Red Dragon also on that book, uh, right? Yep, Red Dragon's right here. That to me, that's the creepiest book. This is another, I got another Michael Connolly right here. Uh, down here is a novelization of the movie Jason X because I'm a dork like that too. <laughs> um, but then I got, I got my, my heroes, Kerouac, Serling, and Hunter Thompson. So wow, okay, that's that's, that's how I roll. That's a good. At the start of the pandemic, when we started doing everything on Zoom, I kind of had my whole the, the digital background on my thing, and and we even have a green screen I can set up behind me and all sorts of that. And and I did that for like the first six months, and now I'm kind of on the ah screw that is too much work. And now you just get to see my office in the background, and it's and a big office, cat, man. The, the cat sleeping there, and and <laughs> yeah, I, well, it's it's sort of like a little. Um, like a little mother-in-law's cottage. There's a bathroom here and a and a little kitchen and everything. But geez, I practically live here. I I do all my work and and you know I, my commute to the office is from the bedroom down to the office and and <laughs> that's that's where I get all the the editing and emails and everything else done. Uh, but my my writing here's my office. It's a little digital recorder that that uh oh. i go out walking all the time and i dictate um and that's just the the process of walking and and being away from interruptions like doorbells and telephones and emails and stuff so and i live in colorado so we have beautiful places to walk around and um although it just had a cold snap so it uh, right. it's a little bit chillier here than it was a few days ago I like totally that off on a tangent here, so we're, we're but like, it works. It's part of the show. A man. lot of people who <laughs> listen, a lot of the people who listen to this show, um, are really interested in also the writing process. 
And so many people think that the writing process is only the moments when you're at the keyboard or pen and paper in hand, and then that's it. But it's not. And so what you're doing, like you just said, is you're you're speaking stories as you're going along. And that's all part of it. Like, it's not just the interior stuff. You're getting it out. And then my question for you then is how much easier is it for you to then take those recordings and turn them into written prose on the page? Well, my... When I'm dictating, I'm, I've been doing this for for decades. I mean, this is I started doing this back when it was a an actual micro cassette recorder that that you would have to turn over when you filled up one side of it. But um, I just I, I think more creatively that way when I'm out. Uh, not only am I away from the interruptions, but there's been many studies showing that creativity increases when you're like doing physical activity, when you're when you're like moving and and I mean, how many times do you get ideas in the shower when you're when you're got pounding water or, Man, or there's, that's a good um, point. Just out uh, walking around, but also like if I'm if I'm out on a trail, and again, I live in Colorado, so I'm up in the in the Rocky Mountains or in the forests or something. Um, we have something called the the Great Sand Dunes National Monument here, and you can imagine I might do some dune writing when I'm <laughs> trudging along on the sand. and And I've done some Star Wars stuff. I, I remember doing one when I was up. Uh, I'd been snowed in in the Sierra Nevada, so I was out kind of snowshoeing on this trail, and I was I was breaking the snow on the trail, and it was cold and it was white and I could smell the snow and hear the wind and get all these sensory details. And I was writing one of my Star Wars books about Han and Leia out on the polar ice caps of Coruscant. And it just like being around all that, you you get, if you're just sitting in front of your computer, staring at the words on the screen, you're you're kind of in like this sensory deprivation thing. And like how how do you get inspired by what the rustle of leaves sound like or or what this the smell of pine leaves, pine needles are and and stuff so i i think that it helps the writing but also um i'm pretty good with dialogue because hello i'm speaking it so i'm not typing something that no human being would ever speak out of their mouth and uh, my audiobook narrators have often made a point that my books are some of the easiest ones for them to narrate because all the sentences flow. Well, <laughs> the sentences flow because I spoke them in the first place. So that it kind of, um, if you're typing, you don't notice that you're putting five words that start with the letter W in a row. That's a challenge. I'll see if I can do that. But, but <laughs> that's where my anyway. mind went. I was wondering what your sentence would be. But I, I was wondering what, uh, how many, if you have a set amount of hours, because um, I, I've watched this interview with, for example, Don Winslow, I think it was last year. And he said that there was a point when he was writing 16 hours a day, which I, my I don't know how a human mind can do that. But I was curious if you have in the past or, or now have hours like that, or is it kind of back to Joe where Joe's three hours and then he's, he's done for the day. Yeah. He's a lazy bastard. (laughs) And he's from Texas. So everything's slower anyway. So it's, (laughs) um, um, it, it sort of depends on, you know, what the deadline is. I mentioned before we, we started this, that I'm on a real killer deadline right now. And I have one more day 
to get a book finished and sent off to my co-author. And I'm almost done. I mean, I, talking I, to I, I hoped I would be done by now, <laughs> um, but I kind of hit some snags and and had to go back and redo some stuff. And and for me, the the first editing pass is the hardest part of the whole process. So I I I love plotting and making it up and outlining everything. I love writing my first draft. I love editing the second and third draft because then it's like clean enough that you can read through it. But that first draft, it's like hacking through a, a swamp and <laughs> getting everything fixed and rearranged. And um, anyway, your your question was about the the timing. So I I have really been on an extra couple of hours a night that instead of normally I would, I would break off at like five, five 30 and go cook dinner. And then uh, my wife and I would just kind of kick back. And I mean, we still watch genre shows and we're sitting there and I might be doing email on the laptop. I'm, I'm also a college professor. So I might be doing like online braiding discussions or something like that. Um, but this, this week has been pretty much, me working until about eight o'clock at night. So it's an extra maybe three hours that I can squeeze in. Um, but kind of to get back to something we were mentioning before that almost everything is some aspect of writing in, in my life. I mean, it's just, if Don Winslow can, can sit there 16 hours writing, like actually making up stuff and typing sentences for 16 hours, that's pretty mind blowing. But yeah, I don't know if that's what he meant. I didn't even think of it like that. <laughs> but I mean, I can go out. Um, I, I can. My best time is in the morning. So I can go out and like write for a few hours, but meaning I go out walking with my recorder. So I'll go out and dictate. Um, I can like on a, on a normal, regular day, I can I can do maybe three chapters and each <laughs> chapter is seven pages. So that's like 20 writing, 21, 25 pages a day. Um, and then the afternoon is editing stuff. And cause that's a whole different part of your brain than making than creating it in the first place. Hmm. And I run a publishing house. So there's constant emails and business and ordering books and doing contracts. And that's, that's nonstop. And, and like I said, I'm teaching a whole graduate program in publishing at, at Western Colorado University. So that keeps me busy. And um just just dealing with emails and and Facebook and and Twitter until it completely melts down and and um Elon's put in hyperdrive, off, man. Don't, don't don't get me off on, on that rant. And you started Elon's gonna destroy, man. I, I have one of those blue checks on my name and I earned it, damn it. I had to submit things. I had to prove that I really was who I am. And now you can pay eight bucks and say, I really am whoever I make up that I am. <sighs> I mean, there's a George Washington account. There's several Chucky accounts. There's a Jason Voorhees. Like, <laughs> did, did you see what I, well, we're recording? What happened today is that a fake account from Lilly Pharmaceuticals announced that insulin was going to be free from now on. And Lilly Pharmaceuticals stock oh like God. went to zero on the stock market today. It totally crashed. And it was a totally fake post, totally fake account. And hey, you know, freedom of speech doesn't matter if you just cost that company millions of dollars. That's well, not even the company. I didn't know that. It's not even the company, man. Think about all the people that affects all the, all, 
all the situation. Let's not go there because because this isn't a horror show, so we can't talk about things like that. (laughs) Anyway, let's let's. But but I think to get back to your uh, your original question about how many hours, it's like I'm always working because even when I'm just like before I go to bed every night, we we have a nice jacuzzi bathtub, and I love to just kick back in the in the tub and kind of relax, and that's where I get to read. Well, with my grad students, we're editing an anthology right now that uh, mm. every year, every year the grad students put together a new anthology. And this mm. year it's it's called Merciless Mermaids and <laughs> like, like awesome. the really dark side of mermaids. And there's some really nasty stuff. Well, they got 502 submissions in and they had to read through the slush pile and they rejected all of like the for bottom tier and then the next tier. And we're now down to like only a hundred of them left. And so now I'm starting to read through the cream of the crop. So every night when I kick back for my reading, relaxing time, I've got like four or five manuscripts in front of me every, every night. And I'm reading through slush pile manuscripts. That's not pleasure reading. I mean, I enjoy them, but that's still work. That's still part of my writing job. So is that uh, a hard copy or digital? Just out of curiosity. I, I I prefer to read in hard copy because I can scribble stuff in the margins, like tighten this up or fix this or whatever. Um, and besides, I'm in a bathtub. So if I drop my iPad into it, it's not really as easy to fix. So um I I mean I I read on my iPad. I I just narrated a whole bunch of uh well, the the Dan Shamble audiobooks. In fact, I'm I'm narrating all of those audiobooks, and I sit there nice. with the iPad and you just kind of scroll up as you're narrating with those. So I'm I'm a big advocate of e-readers and iPads and whatever else you want to do. But there is still some part of me that I I kind of prefer the real book. There's a book that there, there's a lot of books I want to read for pleasure reading, but I I just can't keep up right now with uh. All the other stuff that Brennan and I are reading to for the show. Uh, this is one of them, and it's not small. Watership Down by uh, Richard Adams. I've never well, read are, it. You are far behind if you're yeah. just Watership <laughs> Down. I've never read it, man. I know I should have by now, <laughs> but I, and I know that it's uh, the bunny's a little misleading. It's not a children's story. <laughs> oh, I, I. I read it back when I was, I think, in ninth grade or something, and it stuck with me. I, I could rattle off some of the scenes in it that I remember. And and um, don't don't watch the movie; it was not that great. But um, I've don't never accidentally let your children watch the movie. That's the big one. Oh look, bunnies! No, no. <laughs> that's but, that, that's just one of them, though. I mean, there's there's not enough time. And there's this. Uh, I want to show you guys one more. I want to see if Kevin or TJ. If either one of you have read this, Peter Straub, um, what's the title? This house is without doors. That's it. Yep. Uh, I've read some of his. I haven't read that one. So that's read, the one. Uh, let me. The collection. Josh Mellerman and uh, John F. Taff were talking about it, so I bought it, and um, I haven't read it yet. I haven't got the chance. Here. <sighs> that one. Yeah, yeah you um, got it. Do Oh, nice. That's cool. Yeah, that means a whole lot more now since we I, just lost Peter Straub a, a month ago or so, right? It was been very recent. Yeah, I did the, the Borderlands press boot camp a few years ago. Oh, he was the okay. guest teacher. Uh-huh. Oh, 
Talk about that. that. If Kevin's okay with that, though, talk about it. If he's all right with it, because I want, I would like to hear that just for a minute. Yeah, go ahead. He was. I'm. He's a lot like like you, Kevin. Like really invested in literature, you know, and genre and things like that, and so giving of his time. Like there's, you know, two dozen students in that class from all over the country, and he made at least a little bit of time over that three days for everybody. So I sat in this hotel room with him for half an hour, which, yeah, it costs money, but mm-hmm. that's amazing. You can't though. pay for that. Like, I mean, I did, but <laughs> still just that the experience of that is just absolutely amazing. And to see him kind of like you, Kevin, except he's um, notebook and pencil, but he uses those, he used those black tip, those black wing tip pencils because it was the Steinbeck pencil. And so that's what he would write with. And just all the time, like he could be looking you in the face and taking notes. Yeah, it's all, it's almost journalistic in mm. that way. And yeah, that was a really cool weekend. So, was well, you know, we all of us writers, we're, we're all like one big family and sometimes it's like the Adams family, but we're still all one big family. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, I, I, I spend tons of time. Like I said, I'm, I'm teaching a whole graduate program for students every year. I run um, one of the people running these superstars writing seminars. So we've been doing that for, I think 14 years now, which is like all consuming all day long. And I, I'm involved in my social media. I write stuff to my, fans, fans and readers all the time. And, you know, I, I'm paying it forward, but I can't forget all the people that helped me when I was starting out that, that one of my really big mentors was Dean Koontz. Dean Koontz took me under his wing and he really helped me out and he got me some uh, big contract advice. He got me my agent. He got me all kinds of stuff. And, and I mean, we were, we were pretty close friends and and we would, um, I mean, we correspond all the time. And when we'd be down in the the Orange County area, uh, my wife and I would, would have dinner with him and, and his wife, and we would, we would just talk about stuff and he would be always so supportive. And, and finally, one time I asked him, I said, you know, Dean, I, when I started writing him, I hadn't even published my first Maybe I had published my first novel, but it was real close. It was I wasn't anybody he would have known. I mean, it wasn't any anything, but he was always writing me back and he would always give me advice and always help me out. And and finally, when we were having dinner to and this was after I was much better established with a bunch of bestsellers and stuff. And I said, So Dean, I was just some nobody writer sending you questions and and you gave me all this advice and helped me out. And and why why me? Why did you spend so much time helping me out? And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, oh, I tried to help a lot of people, but you were the only one who ever listened. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I, didn't well, know, I, he, I didn't know he was your, your mentor. Well, that and Terry Brooks was one of my mentors from oh, the very beginning. Yeah, and yeah. and. And these are all like like real friends of like it was hard for me to like get over the you're a god of literature and now you're my friend kind of thing. But um, but really they're they're Terry Brooks is a really good friend of mine and we'll hang out and do all kinds of stuff, but I'm still like 
wow, you're Terry Brooks. And, and yeah, well, then eventually you still have to, your heroes. Yeah. And eventually you still got to, you got to actually work with Coots on those Frankenstein books. Yeah, that was, that was kind of a fun, um, the whole background on that was Frankenstein prodigal son. And he started a whole series with that, but he had written the script for a, a movie that was made that was not, shall we say, a very good movie. The uh, Robert De Niro one, right? Uh, no, 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 no. This Parker Posey was in it. I don't uh, remember who it was. Never mind, sorry. Um, it, this was really bad. Yeah. And so they took his script and they kind of changed a whole bunch of things. <laughs> and and uh, let's just say that Dean didn't think it was the very best version that could ever have been made out, out of his script. And, and so he approached me to take his script and turn it into a novel, which we kind of fleshed it out and, and he just kind of wanted to continue it. So he, so I did the first one and then who did the second one? I get different people doing the different ones. I'm, Ed Gorman, I think, did the second one. Oh, interesting. Um, and I, I think he did the next one or two himself. But it, but that's how that came about. That it was he wanted to have the book version that is the way the movie should have been. So that makes sense. And you know what? This relates for me. I have two. You're this person, but we're also friends, and that's actually Joe Lansdale and Ronald Kelly. Um, I never hit that spot with Peter because after he came on last year and then we, we corresponded through email. I talked with Susan to head her on. She was a super sweet lady. I never hit that point with him, but even emailing him. And even though he was on the show, I still think like that's TJ. I'm sure you feel the same way. Like you actually, yeah. talk, it feels like a dream, not because he de- departed, but like, even when he was alive, it did feel like it happened. Cause Peter, wasn't Peter there? He Peter had a career before Stephen King, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah so that, the, about the same time, the mid and early early mid seventies. Well, writers like that, and and Ramsey Campbell comes to mind. It's just really they're very nice people to all generations, and it just sets a very good tone for, like, if they're this way to you, who the hell are any of us to not? Be that way to other people. Like you said, Kevin, paying forward, that is the greatest lesson I hear from everyone I, I personally look up to. I well, think that's you know, really that good. People who have been around in the business for a really long time, it, like I said before, it is like a big family. And ev- all the editors, well, now it's completely different with all the publishing houses eating each other up and the whole traditional market drastically changing but but it used to be that there was only a certain number of editors and only a certain number of publishing houses and they all knew each other so if you were a total flaming asshole you kind of didn't get much work after a while and the ones who've been around for as long as i mean stephen king Carey was published in what 72 or something like that something like that um you, you don't you don't work in the business this long if you piss everybody off yeah you have to you have to be nice to people and helpful and easy to work with because let's face it writers are a dime a dozen and if if you're too hard to work with well we'll find somebody else to publish a good time to bring up your friend and then tj please jump in your friend who hooked us up with uh connecting us kevin uh jonathan mayberry 
which very thankful mm-hmm. for him. Um, he said something along the same lines because I had just either gotten my first editorial gig as an anthology uh, anthologist or I had just finished edits. But either way, I wanted to pick his brain about his experiences. And long story short, he said the same thing. If someone is too hard to deal with, he won't even waste a second on them because it's just it's not worth it. Oh, I and I've, I've edited. I've edited a bunch of anthologies myself, and I I learn. I don't care how brilliant you are. I'm never working with you again. Yeah, because yeah, life yeah. is too short. And and uh, but on the other hand, Jonathan Mayberry is a delight to work with, and I've had him in a whole bunch of my anthologies, right. and he's had me in a bunch of his. And and I mentioned the Superstars Writing Seminar before. Um, he's also one of our co-teachers. I had him in as a guest instructor about four or five years ago. And he just loved it so much. He said, I'm coming every single year. And he has. He's coming again. Uh, this February is our next one. Uh, and he always comes to that. And he's just so generous and helpful and giving of his time and expertise. And and that's just kind of what we do because we're freakishly nice people. He's, he's a big <laughs> well, teddy And if bear. you look at those, if you look at those 80s anthologies, like the like the height of like horror fantasy and sci-fi anthologies, you get those top tier names that sell the book. And then you get some really great surprises who went on to successful careers later. And then there are just dozens and dozens of people that you never hear from ever again. And a lot of it's like, what happened to them? Like they got in this book with these well-known people, like they had that moment and then they're gone. Sometimes they, well, you know, one of the things you got to think of when you're writing short stories for, you know, trying to get your short stories published, um, it's sort of like an actor going to audition and you, you fail way more often than you actually get the part. Yeah. And a lot of people had stars in their eyes, like they got one story published and they're now going to quit their day job and do something else. And then they can't get another story published. But, um, but then, that is whether you're an Olympic athlete or whether you're an actor or whether you're a writer, that's just the way of the world that, that you have to practice, practice, practice and fail, 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 fail. And then you succeed and get a story published and then you fail 20 more times. And then, and not everybody's cut out for that, 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 um, I mean, if I hadn't been turned down by so many girls in high school for dates, I would never have gotten <laughs> so used to rejection all the time. So, um, but, but that is, people think that that i'm just gonna get rich and famous and publish a book and oh boy do they get their eyes opened up and and i this this is actually a really cool example i've told this story a bunch of times that one of um after my star wars books came out and i started appearing at a lot of these um kind of comic cons and media conventions and things um in the earlier days of those that there was only like two I was like the writer guest and they would find some actor as a guest. And so it was, so the two of us would, would do panels together and things. And one year, I forget where it was. I think Virginia beach or something. I was the guest writer, star Wars writer, Kevin J Anderson. And the actor guest was Mark Goddard. Do you remember who Mark Goddard was? Wait, holy shit. Okay. About time. Someone else brings him up. Let, can I tell a story real quick? You tell a story and I'll finish mine. Go ahead. All right. My dad used to be a teacher. I'm from Massachusetts. 
He taught at this school. Long story short, Mark Goddard was a teacher there. It was a school that was for kids that had social social problems that they couldn't be in the regular public schools. My dad was telling me about him because I'm, I'm I've always loved films and and writing and whatnot. And um, for I, I won't say who Mark Goddard is. I'll have Kevin say that part. But uh, I started looking into him. And one of his ex-wives found a dead body. I think it was like the 60s or 70s. And then I found out that like his great grandfather was the inventor of some type of fuel that is used on space rockets. So go ahead, Kevin. Yes, I know who he is. And you're the first person out of over 200 guests that has brought him up. So thank you. Well, to 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 fill you in, Mark Goddard was the guy who played uh, Major Don West in the original Lost in Space. So he was the, um, for you younger kids, he was, uh, um, Matt LeBlanc played him in the, the boy, that wasn't even very recent, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't. The Lost in Space movie with John, um, or William Hurt in it. Um, anyway, so he was like the hunky Commander Riker. He was the, the dashing um, single heartthrob and this was in, he was the star of Lost in Space. And that ran three years, four years. Yeah. I think it meant four years. Um, but the other thing you got to remember, this was in the 60s. And the United States was truly a monoculture. We had three TV networks. So if your show, Lost in Space, was on, on whatever it was, Wednesday nights, one third of the entire country watched that show. So this was not like some a Netflix show or something that that a few of your friends watch. This was one third of America watched, and he was the star of that show. And when it went off was after four years or whatever. Anyway, so I'm spending the weekend in the convention with him, and we had dinner together, and we I got to know him pretty well. And um, and as Patrick said, that he he was a high school teacher in New Hampshire. <laughs> and and I knew he he dealt with uh, uh, learning challenged or or uh, dis- people with disabilities or something, and he was very happy with what he was doing. But I I finally after the whole weekend I got up the nerve to ask him. I said, "So you were you were the star of one of the biggest shows in the entire country. Everybody in America knew who you were, and that's not an exaggeration." Literally everybody in America knew who he was. And so you did did four years of that. And I said, so I'm sure I found a more tactful way of asking, but I just said, so so what happened? Now you're a high school teacher. I mean, why why didn't I mean I'm imagining like Harrison Ford with the career going on forever and stuff. Yeah, right. And and so he he got a serious look on his face and he said, Well, you know, after Lost in Space was over, that was his weekly gig and he said you know i i had guest stars on on a bunch of cop shows and pi shows and western uh a western he was on manix and and various things but that was always just he was the the guest bad guy of the week or the guest uh victim or whatever and he said i've got a handful of guest star things but i just kept going to auditions and at some point, he just realized that I'm tired of always looking for work. Mm-hmm. 
day after day, week after week. And remember, this is guy was already a big star. And if mm. he didn't have another show to be on, it was guest star, guest star, guest star, guest star. And each one of those that he got, he got turned down for like a dozen more. And so he's auditioning all the time and he's getting a few parts, but he's not getting any huge roles. And he got to this point where it's like, I am tired of looking for work all the time. And so he, he, I don't know when he exactly changed his career, but, but that really struck me because as a writer, that is always what we're doing. Even me with 175 books published, I am always pitching something, writing a proposal, submitting a story to a market, uh, um, trying to, it's like, I'm always auditioning every single time. And, you know, there's something to be said about being able to come home from work and knowing your paycheck's going to show up. And, you know, I've, I've got a whole bunch of contracts right now, a bunch of books that I have to turn in. And almost every one of them is eight or nine months. Just the contract takes that long to get through. And then I get paid some length of time after the contract is signed. So it's really hard to budget things. Unless, but when you're getting first of the month, you get a paycheck. Well, that helps. So yeah. very long sidetrack there, but with Mark Goddard and bring him in. But it it really struck me because that is what writers do all the time. We're like um, character actors that try to make get parts all the time. Freelance and, writers, right? Well, and and one of the things though. You notice like a lot of those Canadian science fiction shows that it's like they have this this rotating crew of of people that do the smaller parts. It's like the same actors all the time. Well, it's because they're kind of in this Well, they're up in Vancouver and hey, he hasn't been mm-hmm. on Battlestar Galactica yet. Let's put him in as as a crewman or something like that. And what you'll find as a as a writer or as an editor when you do find somebody that's reliable, that they're easy to work with, that they turn in their things on time, that it's always good, they might not be famous, but they're always going to come through for you. Well, then you call them back up and then you offer them again. And uh, not that Jonathan Mayberry is a is a bit character actor, but Jonathan Mayberry always comes through. Yeah, Anytime yeah. I ask him to do a story, he's like, I'm, I'm down with that and he's going to do it. And and he will always show up and he'll do it. And and you were mentioning those old 80s anthologies that you'd find kind of the same midlist names in them all the time. Well, that's because the editor knew that he could count on those people to turn in a story. Yep. And it was easier to just call up the people that you knew weren't going to give you a hassle, that weren't prima donnas, that weren't going to be late, that weren't going to be a pain in the butt. And you just you you worked to get your your marquee names to put on the cover but you needed to fill the pages with other stories and those were uh and I was one of those guys for years people I, I had so many anthology story invitations that because they knew I was always going to turn it in and it wasn't until um I think it was 5 years after my first novel was published um that I got my Star Wars gig which kind of kicked us up into a whole new level but before that i was i was an author of critically acclaimed novels which meant they got great reviews and nobody bought them so well and with those anthologies too those reliable writers to me they've always seemed to be the people who are the 
forgive the phrase, maybe the working writer, right? The person who is writing whether they have the anthology invite or not. Like they're constantly crafting a story. Like it's not, oh, look, here's this submission call. I think I might get an idea for that. It's like, no, I have a story because I'm working all the time and I have something. Here you go. Mm-hmm. And or they know how to write a story. Time. They know how to write a story in two, three days. Yeah. And and I'm not exact. I'm not making them sound like hacks. I write a story in two or three days. If it takes longer than that, it's not cost effective because you only get paid a couple hundred bucks for a story. So if it takes you three weeks to write one, you're not doing a very good job of paying your bills. But right. <laughs> um, but but seriously, that it, once you know how to do it as a working writer, you go to work. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any patience for the kind of the the artsy fartsy like oh. I've got writer's block. I just can't write this month. I'm like, well, you know, do doctors get doctor's block? Uh, do oh, lawyers God, I hope get not. lawyer's block? <laughs> you know, do teachers get teacher's block and they don't come to work? Bankers don't say, I just don't feel like handling money today. Well, no, it's your job, damn it. Go to work. And that's a, that's you're a writer, point. you go to work. Yeah, I, I. it's my opinion that like you guys, that everyone isn't cut out to be a professional writer. Now, to clarify, potential bitching, not writer, professional writer, because of the same reason that you just said. I see, for example, people on Twitter talking about what they want to write. Their ideas just sometimes I want to say, shut the fuck up and just do it. Because I don't know if you're posting your, your first draft or if you there's no point. Like, just don't publicly show all the shit you're showing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I kind of want to clarify, too, that there is if you have a full time job and you are not depending on your writing to make a living, then by all means, only write the stuff that that ignites your creative spirit. And if this is the story that compels itself to write and that and that's what you need to write and whether or not you can sell it, then then hooray for you. I, I have no problem with that. Um, and that's, in fact, some of the advice that I give to a lot of newer writers is find a job that you can enjoy or at least put up with so that you don't have to stress about paying the car payment or putting gas in the car or or, or paying rent or food or something like that. Um, and then write on weekends or something like that. That's perfectly fine. But if you're going to be a full time writer, you can't just wait for the muse to strike and and write a poem and think that's going to pay your mortgage that that you know that's not the way and and this is not a big money industry guys right i thought i was going to get rich off one book not me yeah i I get more (laughs) time to write every time my wife gets a raise which well, well, that's that's the other solution is you find a partner that makes a good living and they'll let you write. So that's yeah, another no, really she, valid solution. My my situation is you have to bring in this much every month, however you make that, whatever it is. Like mm-hmm. I mean, don't don't go be a, a prostitute or anything. But you know, you said whatever you have. Man. You have this much to bring in. So how much then, do you really want to be a writer? The whole exactly right. <laughs> Think of the inspiration standing on street corners and and swinging your pearls, TJ. I, I just I don't know that you'd make a lot of money that way either. But I mean, it's just, the hair. I like the hair. 
So let's talk about your uh, Dan Shamble um, <laughs> so series. There, there we go. We better change the subject right away. <laughs> no, you guys can talk. You can talk about whatever the hell you want, but I don't want to not talk about it because we're going on uh, your, I think it's the ninth book in the series. Uh, just the the eighth one is going to be published okay. um, like right before this episode drops. So, so this is a series. It's called Dan Shamble Zombie PI, and I just love this character. I love the series. I I laugh to myself when I'm writing it. I just enjoy it so much. <laughs> and it it came about. Um, like I said, I'm a horror fan. I read a lot of horror. I watch horror movies and TV shows and things, and after watching World War Z and after watching 28 Days Later and after watching um, The Walking Dead, when it got to the point where you just hated the fact that everybody you knew just got killed somehow or other. And spoiler, but <laughs> shouldn't be too much of a spoiler about Walking Dead. <laughs> um, but it just got so grim and so nasty and depressing every zombie thing that I watched. And I went, you know what? It's time for space balls. <laughs> that's what you, that's awesome. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, and that's I thought makes, it, that makes it, sense. it's time, it's time to do something sillier with, with, uh, with the whole zombies and monsters and, and things. And, and so I, I came up with this whole scenario where, um, let's see if I can remember it. So it was like, it was on midnight on a full moon when all the planets were aligned, um, the, this rare astronomical alignment, and the virgin's blood was spilled on a cop on the original copy of the Necronomicon. Well, the virgin was actually a 50-year-old librarian, and the blood was spilled because she got a paper cut, but it still was virgin's blood on the Necronomicon, and the planets were aligned, and that just did this shift, and it brought all of the monsters back the werewolves and zombies and ghosts and ghouls and 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 everything and so after this is all before the book starts so after all that uproar well turns out that monsters just kind of want to live their lives like everybody else does and so they kind of move to the unnatural quarter sort of a new orleans like thing and all the monsters live in the city and they have problems just like any other people do that they get divorced and they have they they have they lose things and they have property disputes and they uh, so my guy Dan Chambeau is a private investigator who human private investigator who works in the uh, natural quarter and he's got a partner who is a bleeding heart human lawyer and she wants justice for the monsters because of course all the laws are not written with monsters in mind and you know for instance one uh, one guy is is trying to break the prenuptial agreement with his wife who has become a werewolf because she's not the same person who signed it. And so he's trying to get out of what he's, he's owes in the divorce settlement. And, and uh, let's see. So um, it just goes on and on. And he's a detective private investigator, and then he gets killed on a case, but he comes back as a zombie and he's back from the dead and back on the case. And, and these are all, it's like the naked gun. I mean, they're really stupid, really full of puns and dumb jokes. And, and you know, one of his first cases is the this vampire comes running in and he's terrified and needs protection because um, he's seeing pointed wooden stakes everywhere and thinks people are trying to kill him. 
And there's a mummy who comes shambling in. Uh, it's all. That was my favorite part, the, the mummy. It does. He comes, the mummy come in and his, and his name is Raman Hotep and, and has nothing to do with dried noodle dishes or anything. <laughs> uh, but he wants to be, he's suing to be emancipated from the museum because he's a person, damn it, not property. And he shouldn't be on display. And, and, you know, there's there's people being harassed by their poltergeist drunk uncle. And and so the whole thing, it's like a it's like the Rockford Files meets the Adams family. And it is played for laughs and it, it's really ridiculous all the time. There's there's dumb puns throughout. And he just solves crimes with or, or cases with uh, missing art objects. And and like there is an an artist who has um, a depressed artist who had who had painter's block and so he killed himself but then he came back as a ghost and be found the whole death experience very inspirational so now he's painting all over the place and he's just releasing his new painting which is a bunch of large-eyed cute zombie puppies so it's the kitschiest painting you can imagine but his heirs are really upset because if he starts painting again then all of the previous great works by this artist are devalued because they're no longer one of a kind because now he's cranking out paintings all over the place as a ghost. And it just goes on and on from there. So I've got two short story collections and six novels and the new novel is called Double Booked and it comes out November 22nd and Double Booked is, it, it's got doppelgangers. It's the publisher, because I get into my publishing stuff, the the publisher who is releasing the the special twelfth anniversary uh, limited edition of the Necronomicon, which is signed and numbered, even though the author has been dead and it's bound in human skin. Or for the the silver edition, it's bound in lamb skin, and the the <laughs> copper edition is bound in cardboard or something. And and uh, so they've got the special edition coming out and. And we have a whole adventure with the uh, their car breaking down and they have to take it for service to an auto repair shop, which is run by gremlins. And they're great at installing defects. And um, <laughs> there's there's the weird, the rogue werewolf cop, Harry Harry, who's written his own memoir called Make My Day. And he wants to try to publish his own memoir about his the scandals in the werewolf police department. And um Anyway, it, it just silliness ensues, and I I love these things. It's been optioned for a TV series two or three times, and we just hope that it it's going to get picked up. But anyway, the the whole series it was originally published by Kensington Books. They did the first four, um, <clears throat> but then they um, here's kind of my my snarky traditional publishing thing. These are fun books. These are short books. These are hilarious books. These are agreed that you're done. And the traditional publisher didn't want to bring them out any faster than one every year or year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I went, no, these should be out like every three or four months. And, and so after they did four books over the course of like four years, um, I got the rights back and I've started and I've republished them under my own publishing house, Wordfire Press. Um, and we wanted to re- redo all of the covers. And so I've got this team of wonderful, beautiful, talented um, cover artists and designers, and they all live in Ukraine. 
And so I hired them to do the, the whole redo of the Dan Shamble series. And they sent me some samples and we agreed on the design and I loved it. And we started them working on it. And then the war broke out and they're starting to write me saying it might be an extra two days to deliver this cover for number three because we lost all of our power and we've been in a bomb shelter because Lviv is being bombed by Putin's missiles. Jesus. So how can you not say, sure, take the extra two days if you need it? So um, anyway, if, if nothing else, if you just look at at the covers of the series, um, um, in fact, here, here's my real plug that we'll give to everybody. I've got a whole web store where it's signed copies of all my books on it, and it's wordfireshop.com. And you can just look at the Dan Shamble covers there, buy them, of course. But but if you don't want to buy them, just have a look at them. I think that the redesign has been just fabulous, and I love what they did with them. And, and again, this is number eight. And what was great was after, again, after I got the rights back from Kensington, and then I published a couple of short story collections, and then I did one new novel, I knew I had a lot of fans out there for this series because they kept asking me about it. But I, but I've got Dune contracts and I've got all these other books. And it's <laughs> like, so how do I squeeze in writing a book that nobody's going to pay me anything for it? And, you know, you publish it and then they get sales. But um, it's a little hard to write a whole book if it's just entirely on spec, especially when I've got all these other deadlines. And so I put together and ran my very first Kickstarter for the new Dan Shamble book. And and boy, was that a great experience. It just blew up all over the place. And and uh, I made three times what I was expecting. And, Holy shit. And, uh, we had Congrats. 600, 650 backers. And I got to pay for the whole cover art redesign all the way through. And and so I'm, I will probably be writing another Dan Shamble novel next year. And we'll probably also do a Kickstarter for it. And oh, and I that narrated kind of my, is- own, my own audio book for it. Um, and but one of the one of the really fun things with the Kickstarter is call back to the early part of the show. Remember, this is how I write. I use my digital recorder. I dictate all the chapters. So one of the rewards that you could get for the Kickstarter is I would send you all of my original audio files as I dictated them as it was going along. So you hear me like crunching along in the snow. You hear like <laughs> dogs barking at me as I'm walking past the house. You'll even hear me like cough and snicker as I think of a joke and I can't even keep it into myself. So um, so that was really cool. People got to hear, hear the the creative process of me just dictating a couple of chapters a day as I as I wrote the book that way. And that kind of thing is really validating though, isn't it? Because when you publish a book, <laughs> oh the Kickstarter, right? The Kickstarter, yeah. oh yeah. Because you publish a book and it's out there. And you just kind of hang around for reviews. You get some positive ones. You get some negative ones. But it's all back end. With the Kickstarter campaign and similar things like that, it's upfront support. It's these people want oh, this from oh, me. They, they want it. And, and of course, it didn't hurt that my mine was running right when Brandon Sanderson's was going on. And he made $42 million on his. <laughs> now, mine was a great Kickstarter, but I didn't make $42 million dollars. Um, although I, I did do a really fun video that kind of went viral. It had 5,000 views when I 
right, right when like my Kickstarter was coming to its end and Brandon's was already over, I did this whole thing saying, come on, guys, we can beat Brandon's record. We can beat Brandon's Kickstarter. And I know how to do it. And it's easy. It's simple that if I can just get 42 of my fans to pitch in a million dollars each, <laughs> do it. And anyway, that was kind of fun. Um, yeah, that campaign so, was so, crazy. So, but, but your, your point, TJ, is that it is like people are putting their, their, it's like they're buying the, the ticket before the movie show. I mean, they're, they're paying for it up front and they're trusting you to do it and you damn well better deliver it. And in fact, that's one of the things that I, I fear is going to happen after Brandon's big success is you're going to get a whole bunch of weenies who don't know what they're doing and they promise the moon and then they take everybody's money and then they can't do yeah. what they said they were going to do. But I mean, I, I knew I was going to write the book. I knew I was going to publish the book. I knew how to do it. Um, but one of the things that I learned is like always, and I've supported people's Kickstarter things before, but it wasn't because I was a desperate fan. I was just, there were friends of mine and here's, here's 25 bucks and I'll support your, your thing. It's not, it's not really like here I am poor starving artist and I need you to give me money so I can write my book. It's really more like getting your real poor fans to join the VIP backstage club. It, it's like they're good way to look at it. They're getting they're getting to read it. So this book, double book that comes out on November twenty second, which right after this, right before this drops, the Kickstarter backers got to read the copy of it in June. Yeah, they got to read it four months early. And like I said, the people that that paid at a certain level, they got all my original audio files. And they got the audiobook the moment it was recorded rather than, again, it's like three, four months before it's released to the, the main public. And then as an author, I can do special things like I'll do a, maybe a special numbered special edition for the top 50 backers or something mm -hmm. like that. And or, or maybe a um, I, I was going to run another Kickstarter this month, but, you know, those Ukrainians again. They, I didn't get the cover art done in time, so I was gonna, <laughs> I, I was gonna run a, run one starting November eighth, but the art's not in, and it's gonna be a week late. But then after that, it's Thanksgiving, and then it's Christmas, so you're not gonna run a Kickstarter now, anyway. <laughs> oh God, but, no, we'll no, cycle but, back after the holidays. <laughs> yeah, but but the thing was, what I had planned to do though was to use the cover art and make a Christmas card or a holiday card, Ooh. and I and if you. I don't know, pledged 15 bucks or 20 bucks or something, I would personally sign and personalize your holiday card and send it out. And only like a hundred people would get them. And yeah. so that's, that becomes a limited thing that, that your real fans want to have. So. Yep. Yeah. No, I did so the I, same I thing. I love it. I did the same thing literally today. My box of first run books for my new thing came today and I spent two hours signing and hand numbering um i'm not at that level yet i say yet because hopefully someday I'm working toward it um but i had 56 pre-orders of mine which fully funded the cover and the printing and the shipping and my web store renewal so it's like i'm good and and that's it is how things are changing i mean back yep. Back in the old days, we were talking about you really had to 
you wrote your book and you had to find an agent and the agent would shop it around to the different publishers. And each one of those publishers might take three months to give him an answer. And I don't know, I'm too type A, I'm writing five books a year. So if I have to wait two years to get an answer on something, that that math doesn't work out very well. My God. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so by being able to do it do it yourself by running a kickstarter by indie publishing it i mean i i say indie publishing it but my wordfire press we've done 400 and some books by 100 and some authors so it's wow not really a little homegrown indie publishing house but yeah starts times are changing right? And so, at Wordfire Press, we have published a whole bunch of Jonathan Mayberry stuff. So we're all, everything's interconnected. That's yep. great. I think most of my Mayberry is from your Wordfire. I'd have to check to make sure, but yeah, em- no, he's a great Graves, guy. I love Empty that guy. Graves collection was one yep. that we just released uh, six months ago or so. And and he's in one of my student, an- no, he's in two of my student anthologies because you can always count on him to be one of the marquee names to go on the cover. Yeah. Um, so what, what we do for these anthologies is the students, they come up with the concept. The first year was called Monsters, Movies, and Mayhem. So it's like all kinds of monster movie stories. And uh, the second year was called Unmasked, all kinds of stories about masks and d- different things. Could you tell it was COVID year? Um, and then we just had one called Gilded Glass, um, kind of twisted fairy tales. And Jonathan was in the Monsters movies and mayhem, and he was also in Gilded Glass. Um, so we can always come. The first time we had him on was in season one, and I totally dorked out because he brought back weird tales. And I just think that's the coolest thing. I'm in thing, the next man. issue of Weird Tales. See, yes. he asked me and I asked him. And, and <laughs> well, it, what, what was great is, so this is the most random, spurious podcast interview you've ever done, I'm sure, because I'm ping-ponging all over the place. But Amazing. Because I like to go, I write when I'm hiking, right? And I, I love to go off and I, I love my wife very much, but I also love to go off like in a cabin somewhere by myself. I'm, I'm the same. I get and, it. And sorry to say, and it. <laughs> I, I do not want to take my wife to a cabin because she's more of a room service and, and manicure kind of person. So, <laughs> um, so Jonathan asked me to write a story for this sword and sorcery issue of weird tales. And I said, all right, how long do you want? How much is it? I mean, I said, yes, but he filled me in on, so it's like a 10,000 word story. And, and I, I, I think it was 10 cents a word or something like that. And and so I said, (laughs) I said, so if I'm going to write this story and this is the right. And then I went, you know, if I go away for a week up in the Grand Mesa in Colorado, where I want to go hiking all over the place and I can rent a cabin there and it'll be like $600 so Jonathan, you just paid for my whole week-long vacation, and I'll have money left over. So, um, yeah. So I agreed to do the story, and I wrote it in like three days while I was out there, and then I wrote some other stuff. So that's amazing. I want that. So I think it's really important to point out that you are very clearly a successful, no matter what metric you you success as. You're a successful novelist. There's no doubt in that and i bring that up because you uh another a newer writer comparatively speaking um paul tremblay he still teaches full-time and, and he's he just got 
you know, his movie adapted by M. Night Shyamalan. I can never say his last name right. But there's there's a lot of cases like that. And you named all the reasons why, but I, I just think that's important to emphasize because you never know who's starting out or what not. Um, and I, I've recently been bringing up how it takes time. Like I'm going on my 10th year trying to be a novelist. I've written a lot of novels, but not, not trying to make this all about me, but um, I'm just now working on getting my first novella published for next year because it took me that long. And Brandon Sanderson, actually, I watched a lot of his classes online. He, he Look him up on YouTube it, it, for the listener. They're really informative. But uh, he said a good metric is about 10 years um, if you want to make a career out of writing that by 10 years is kind of around the time when most people will find their voice and get everything. Everything's clicking. And I feel like that's true. Cause I'm, I'm literally going on my 10th year and things are making sense now. Um, well, one of the, I remember I said, Dean Koontz was my mentor. One of the things that he said, and I used to have it literally typed up and put on, on my wall above my, my desk was that um, as a writer, remember that, your first million words are all practice. Mm-hmm. And if you can get paid for your practice, then good for you. But your first million words, which is for, for people who don't think like this, your first million words is about 10 or 12 novels. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Your first million words is practice. And if you can get paid for your practice, great. But otherwise, it's still practice. And you're not wasting your time. You're learning your your craft. Tita, jump in, man. I got to hear what you think. <laughs> well, it's the same. It's another sports anthology, right? Uh, you, the kid that starts out playing Little League baseball that keeps playing might someday make the major leagues and actually make some money. But for even the one of them, there's all the kids that still keep playing with that dream, right? Who aren't getting paid for practice and paid for games, you know, and there's a lot of minor league ball players who make 30 grand a year and travel the country, right. With still that, that hope, but they're not all going to make it. And all of them were the best players on their high school and college teams. Right. So it's tough. And if you, you know, have that point of this is, all the years that I promised myself to do it. And then you give up. Okay. Good for you. Somebody else will take your spot. Well, and I, I, yeah. also, I also have a, a thing I always talk about, about the, if you look into all of these flash in the pan overnight successes, you'll find that they're really not overnight successes. They've been kicking their butt and working on it for 10, 15 years. Right. And right. like Trembley is another good example of that because you know, he had suddenly these larger hits and you think, oh, look, here's this new guy suddenly at this. And then you go back and like, no, there's actually three or four novels before. Yes. And yeah, yeah it wasn't overnight at all. Well, and and look, I really like teaching. I like paying it forward. I, I love working with my students. It gives you a whole different kind of a rush or a high to 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 see the students succeed and to watch them get it and to and to build them up into your peers. Um, but I won't lie, I, I'm not at all unhappy about the really nice university healthcare insurance that I get. 
because no matter how successful you are as a writer, you got to pay out of pocket for your health insurance for those of us here in the United States, at least. Um, and, and it was getting, cause I'm, I just turned 60 and my wife's a few years older than me. And, and there are like magic numbers. Like when you turn 50 and stuff, then, then all of your premiums skyrocket. And my, I was full-time writer. She was a best-selling writer, but she's basically runs our business here. Um, just the two of us were paying out of pocket $25,000 a year for health insurance. Well, who's got an extra $25,000 a year lying around? It's a lot. That's that's not <laughs> something lot. that you can do. I mean, I believe literally most quote-unquote professional writers don't even earn $25,000 a year. So, you know, there there are reasons to keep your day job, especially if you're you're um if you can put up with it, if it's a nice job or I mean, I used to be a a technical writer. I would write like user's manuals for things. And I wrote um, safety guides for respirator use and things like that. Not the most exciting work, but I was writing. I was earning my living as a writer. And I learned really about grammar and book design and, and production and all kinds of stuff like that that was useful. And I got paid vacation and I got retirement and I got health insurance and and then I published my first couple of novels. And then I got my Star Wars gigs and I got more contracts thrown at me than I could possibly handle. So I said, yay, we're going to quit. So I quit my job and, and became a freelance writer. And that was great until after a while, it, it's you've got to realize, oh, well, if I if I want a retirement plan, then I put my own retirement money in. And um in fact, it was somebody, I forget who told me this, but it was this great analogy about like, yes, it's great to be a full-time and freelance writer that this is great because I can take a day off anytime I want. You know what that's called? <laughs> it's called a day I don't get paid. Right? And I can take a sick day anytime I want. If I don't feel good, I can just take a sick day. You know what that's called? A day I don't get paid. And any day that you are not writing is a day you don't get paid. Yeah. Damn, that's a good point. Um, I'm gonna take a let's call this a, the the most discouraging podcast that you've ever no, read. no, no, no. It's important. But that's to the hear thing, this. is like if you take this as discouraging, those are the people who are going to give up. If you take this as discouraging, the people who aren't going to give give up are the ones that are like, Yeah, I get that, I understand that. I'm still going to do my best to make it happen. And well, and and one of the things that I, I just said I quit my job, but I didn't quit my job until my wife and I literally had one year's worth of expenses in the bank. We That's smart. Yep. We we socked it out so that that if if things crashed and burned, we had a, a cushion of one year's worth. Um, we were living in the the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. And that's when we moved out to Colorado because by golly, things were a whole lot cheaper to build and live <laughs> in Colorado than they were in California. So, so uh, we built our nice house here and, and you always look for work and that's not a discouraging thing. I think it's kind of fun to be pitching things and, and doing it as long as you're getting some yeses there in the stack. Right. And, and, you know, that's, that's the job I've got. 
Um, well, a whole different story. I mean, I've, I've been um, connected with the rock band Rush for a long time. I'm very good friends with Neil Peart, the drummer who passed away a couple of years ago. And they just kept recording their stuff. They, I mean, their mid-80s, they were having platinum albums and everything, but they kept touring. They kept recording new stuff. They kept selling. They kept their fans happy. And, you know, in, in a creative endeavor, the worst thing you can do, if you have a really good year, don't ever assume that every year is going to be like that. Seriously. I mean, that's like, yay, I sold a big contract. So every contract is going to get big. Um, no. Doesn't happen. I nope. um, I mean, I, I used to make a really real, um, a real good living. And I got so much of my work writing all these movie novelizations. And I mean, that was when I was doing Star Trek stuff and I did X-Files stuff. And, and, uh, and those were great. But, you know, X-Files went off the air. And just think about this. If you if you remember, there was a time when just about every single movie that came out, there was a paperback book version of it in the stores. Mm-hmm. There, the Vampire there, every, <laughs> every every um, well, but I, I mean the actual novelizations, the uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and The Empire Strikes Back, and. And a lot of them written by you, Kevin. (laughs) And Alan Dean Foster wrote a whole bunch of them, but that market just went away. When's the last time you saw a paperback book of, of a novelization of like, this is a, this is like the biggest no brainer ever right now, as we're recording this, this weekend is uh, um, Wakanda forever comes out. Probably will be one of the biggest movies of the whole year it would seem that there would be the novel of that in every grocery store. I, I'm not saying that there isn't because I didn't look, but I be. bet you that there isn't one. But a lot of them now, like they get um, junior novelizations. So like they adapt it for a YA yeah, not, audience. Not, I mean, I used to eat up as a reader. I used to just go through Alien and and Close Encounters and Dragon Slayer and all those and and what those are is that the writer is given the final uh, version of the movie script. We we'll hope it's the final version of the movie script, and then you have to turn that into a novel, like like take the screenplay and put he said she said she said and describe things and and it, it sometimes it's tough because as I don't know if any of your um, listeners have have noticed, but sometimes movies are downright stupid and <laughs> yeah and you gotta write the version of it that's in the script and you're just going like but no he would never say this and um um but not like like uh tj you had red dragon on on the back and i think that's the movie tie-in cover that you got on there um but that was a novel novel that got turned into a movie it wasn't yeah. somebody took the movie script and turned it into a novel but this uh, one uh Jason X, but like right below this, actually, I have I have one of these classic ones. Yes. So who, I can't read it on the screen. Who wrote that one? Uh, James Kahn. Okay, James Kahn also did the Return of the Jedi yep. uh, novelization. I I don't know anything about him, but I know he did a fair number, and that's 
And that's and those, that the was, Halloween that was good all, work. Yeah. But all three of those new Halloween movies were novelized. Yeah, but, I got I got my I, I got this song by Tim Wagoner. I I asked him and he thankfully signed it for me. But um that's only because I know him. But <laughs> that, that is a that is a real um that's a rarity now because they don't they don't do that very often. Partly it's because Hollywood has gotten so absolutely paranoid they won't let anybody have access to the script. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that because a movie comes out so fast on Netflix, you don't you used to buy the book because you couldn't go to see the movie over and over again. Mm-hmm. I just and, checked. There's no novelization of Wakanda Forever. There is a graphic novel, but it's well, it looks like it's it's a comic book. Why wouldn't there be a graphic? It, novel? <laughs> it looks like it's targeted for a younger audience. There's no novel, though. Yeah. Yeah. I so think I, that's coming you back. Think? I would think there would be. I would think that that's a great way to make a lot of money. Even if the novel's not good, you're still going to make a lot of money off of it. But uh, but the real point of me bringing this up was that I was doing all, I was making good money at that. I could just pick up the phone saying, hey, what movies are coming out? Give me a, a book. And and that, that entire, it, it, it's your writing career and publishing, it's like, we invested all of our money in a blockbuster video store. Oh my God. <laughs> I know how that ends. But if, if, if I hate to keep saying how old I am, but, but when blockbuster chain was so huge and then there was Hollywood video and there's all these other things, I don't think it would have occurred to anybody that they would just vanish overnight. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I do. I did want to ask you, about going back to Neil Peart, uh, how how did you first become? How did you meet them? Like you were you obviously were fa- a fan of the band first, right? Oh, I was a huge fan of the band, and in fact, my very first novel, uh, Resurrection Inc., was inspired by their album Grace Under Pressure, and I put that in the acknowledgments of the book that this novel was inspired by the haunting Rush album Grace Under Pressure, and I wanted to thank. Getty Lee and Alex Lifeson and Neil Peart. And, and when my the book was published, I got copies. I signed one copy for each of the guys and I just mailed it off to Mercury Records <laughs> and, and didn't really expect anything. But about a year or so later, Neil wrote it, wrote me back and he had read the book and he loved it and wrote me a fan letter Holy and shit. At the bottom of it, he said, if you want to keep corresponding, I'd be happy to. And oh my God. And that was, gosh, 1990, 1990, I think it was. And so I we were friends for like 30 some years. And uh we did a short story together and we and he wrote the introduction to one of my story collections. And um, but then it was in like late, I think 2010 or something like that. Uh, Rush was putting together, uh, and Neil did, did all the writing of the lyrics. They were putting together a concept album, a steampunk fantasy adventure that was Clockwork Angels, which would be their last studio album. And Neil was writing me all these steampunk questions and plotting questions, and and um, he he just kept brainstorming these ideas. And like, I'm still this nerdy Rush fan, even though I've published. <laughs> Books, and I'm just going like, oh, cool. He's 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 uh, asking me about stuff. And then after they had recorded a couple of the songs, they were still working on the album. 
Uh, my wife and I had lunch with him at a at a diner oh. in Santa Monica. Nice. And and Neil was just all excited about the he loved this album and he loved the story and it was the best thing that they'd ever done and it it wasn't wasn't going to be just uh, like their album but it was going to be like a Broadway musical and it was going to be a novel and it was going to be Ice Follies and and I'm dirty <laughs> Rush fan going like ooh cool Ice Follies and. <laughs> My wife is listening more closely, and she said, a novel? Excuse me, Neil, but a novel? Who's going to write the novel? And, and Neil goes, well, Kevin is, of course. And and <laughs> so Neil and I, um, we we climbed a mountain together and brainstormed the whole, because he had the, the songs telling a story, but they're just like little snapshots. Mm-hmm. And we had to do the whole world building and the characters and everything else and the plot twists and and... So we we climbed a fourteen thousand foot peak on a day off in between his shows, and we brainstormed the book, and and I wrote the draft, and then we went back and forth, and this was just um, terrific. It's Clockwork Angels, the novel, and it came out. It hit the New York Times bestseller list the first week it came out. Damn, um, <laughs> won, won a so couple cool. of awards. Uh, and then from that, we kind of got the idea to do a second book called Clockwork Lives, which is like a steampunk Canterbury Tales all tied together with with a bunch of the characters. And then um, based on that, and that one won the Colorado Book Award, and and it's, it was my my favorite book of all the ones that I've written. Wow. And really, I mean, it just, it really is. is no, it says closer, something. That says something. Closer man. to the heart, which uh, that's the rush <laughs> reference there. Um, it's, it's but then song. part of, part of that, and one of the, one of the stories, like Neil came up with an idea saying, Hey, what if we do this for like one more adventure and wrap it all up? And, and, and so then I riffed off of that and we started brainstorming and, and we went, yeah, we gotta do, we gotta do this. And we started coming up with notes and I kept, kept track of the things we were brainstorming. Uh, but, but I had, I had all kinds of stuff that were under contract and I was busy and, and uh, Neil was just going off on the, it was the 40th anniversary tour for Rush. So that was like a, a two year thing where they went around um, touring. So he wasn't going to do any writing, but we, I kept all the notes and we were going to do this third one. And then uh, Rush retired and Neil kind of, he he really wanted to retire because the the road show thing was not his favorite thing to be doing. And and he had a daughter and he had a nice house. He had a wife and he wanted to uh, relax. And very shortly uh, after they retired, uh, he got diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And Neil and I still kind of, um, I mean, I've kept meeting with them and we talked some, we talked a little bit about, uh, the third one called Clockwork Destiny, um, but he, but it, we couldn't do it. Um, he he told me that uh, I know you can't do this until after I'm gone, and so I just had all these notes. And I I, I when he passed away, uh, I it 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 just devastated me because I I had had in that same. I think it was a six month period. I lost my dad. I lost my son and I lost Neil. Mm. So not great. And I just locked everything away and didn't even think about it for a year. But on the year anniversary of his death, I 
I pulled out the notes and I looked at them and, and I remembered our, our brainstorming and I remembered how cool this book was going to be. And there's some really great stuff in there, but I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. And so I contacted uh, Neil's wife, uh, Carrie, and I said, so Carrie, this, you know, Neil and I were doing this and I've got all this notes and I kind of think I should write it. And uh, and, but I'll only do it if you think it's okay. What What do you think? And she gave me her full heartfelt uh, blessing to do it. So I wrote Clockwork Destiny by myself, and it may well be the best thing that I've ever written, really and truly. I, I can't read it myself without tears pouring down my face. And that came out in June. So it's only been out mm-hmm. a couple of months. And fans have loved it. And and. I just love how it came out. I, those three books are just like the, I, I'm just so proud of those books. And I, well, I mean, I've, I've written a lot of stuff and I'm, I'm very proud of a lot of the things, but these, these are, remember what I said that if you, if you didn't, if you had a full-time job and you only could write the stuff that really were your passion to write, well, these would be the ones that I would write. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, you have a good history of collaboration and what I, uh, like F. Paul Wilson would call playing in other people's sandboxes with that. But it seems like these three um, sort of transcended that into more personal areas for you. Um, do you think that's one of the reasons, um, not just that you like them better, but that they are better? Like it's not well, just, oh, here, go write this for me, but it's that yeah, more no, I, personal. I think, I think they are better. I mean, they're, yeah. um, remember we were talking about the working writer, but then they're, they're I think these are, these are books that just that had to be written and um look i wrote the novelization for league of extraordinary gentlemen that that i mean i'm happy with how it turned out but that was the the world's not going to stop turning if if i hadn't done that book um but these books i think are something a whole lot more special and you know and they're beautiful books are by canadian publisher ecw press and they just did the most spectacular job of them. And, and so there, there's my pitch. I loved it. <laughs> Did you feel, uh, I don't know if this is poorly come on, come off poorly phrased, but did you feel Neil's spirit with you while you were writing the third book? Did, were there times when you kind of had to stop? Cause he was, cause I, I'm just trying to imagine myself in your shoes <laughs> and um, I feel like it'd be hard to not think of him Wrote the whole process. Well, I mean, his his words are all the way through there because, like, like nonstop, every one of the Rush albums playing on nonstop loop as I'm writing it, right? And so all of his lyrics, there are there there may be like a thousand or so little Rush Easter eggs in the books, you know, little little lyrical things dropped in, but also, um. I, in order to get back into the, because the first one was written in 2011 and the second one was 2015 or something. And so this was 2021 when I finally got around to, to doing Clockwork Destiny. Um, I had to go back and reread the first two. And I'm a slow reader, so I did the audiobooks. And Neil Peart narrated the audiobook of Clockwork Angels. And so to get into this, world and to get into the spirit, I was listening to about nine hours of Neil Peart reading me the book that I had written. 
in his voice. And that was just That's trippy, man. It was like, and it was like cathartic. It was like, this is okay. He was great. And, and, and so because Neil read the first one, that's why I went into the audiobook studio and I narrated the audio of of Clockwork Destiny. So he did the first one, I did the last one, and it seemed kind of appropriate that way. Bookends, yeah, that makes sense. So this is uh this is gonna be the part of the show where we kind of wrap down with a few more questions. Good, because um, my, my voice is starting to go, so <laughs> we, we better wrap it up pretty quick. <laughs> it's my question would be, what are you currently reading? But you talked about it a little bit earlier there, Kevin. Do you want to, anything else you want to mention about that book? Well, what I'm reading right now is a whole stack of submission stories for Merciless Mermaids. It's yeah. what I'm doing right now. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. TJ, what are you currently reading? I have just started reading for like the fifth or sixth time True Grit because I'm about to write a Western. So I had, I had to go old school. So yeah, True Grit. It's great. That's it's really interesting. I actually haven't read True Grit yet, surprisingly. I want to find a copy in a store, but I guess I'm going to have to go to like eBay or Amazon. I just want to walk in a paperback store. I've tried many times and and find it, and they're always sold out. I don't yeah. I don't know why. Well, you know, I got I got to do the plug. What even though people don't like it, but there is online bookstores that you can order from. That's true. I, I didn't specifically need to say Amazon, <laughs> but there's BarnesandNoble.com. There's there are a, many. There's any number of other ones, and I mean, I, I have I've written books. a lot of books. And I, I have people people writing me, going like, I keep going into your bookstore looking for this obscure novel of yours that you published in 2007. Why can't I find it? I went, well, because they're not carrying 2007 books right now. <laughs> they're uh, just order it and. It's yeah. like it never occurred to them that they could go online and order one. And you know, it don't don't get all frustrated. You can find find the stores. And I'll plug again. I have signed copies on wordfireshop.com. So you can get and Clockwork Destiny, I've got it there, and Clockwork Angels. Oh, that's cool stuff. So so I can I can anyway. imagine that you got a lot of rush fans just spot, which is I don't even know how high that number is, but you got a built-in audience. There's at least five. At least five. <laughs> Do you know the show Trailer Park Boys? Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm bringing they're, up. They're big. They're big fans, and and in fact, the the guy with the big glasses uh, uh, has appeared in at least one of their music videos. So yeah, I was gonna say it's uh, it was, I love that show in the movies. It was really funny watching them, watching Rush and that. Um, I'm currently reading, uh, I'm going back to it, I put it on pause for other books, but uh, Blood Meridian by mm-hmm. uh, Cormac McCarthy. It's my first time reading it. And uh, yeah, it's a, are you okay? Just have to, are you okay? It's pretty, it's pretty weird. <laughs> it's a weird ride, man. <laughs> I'm also reading uh, David J. Skiles. He's got this sampler because um, I bought some books from him. He does, he sells book signed books on his Facebook and, and um, he sent a sampler of, I guess, their stories throughout other collections and whatnot. But, um, yeah, that's what I'm reading right now. Uh, Kevin, where can people follow you? Um, I am on Twitter as the word the with my initials, the KJA. And on Facebook, if you do official Kevin J. Anderson, just 
problem with Facebook is they only let you have 5,000 people and I max by 5,000 people. And so everybody keeps friending me and I go, I, I can't, Facebook won't let you, but go over here. <laughs> so, uh, and then they all get whiny and go, but I want to be on your real page. I go, well, but I post the same damn thing on every single page. So uh, <laughs> little rant there, but, but yeah, um, on, uh, let's see, Facebook, just look up my name official, but uh, wordfire.com is my website, which needs updating, but it does have a whole section on it about that master's degree program in case anybody's interested. We are looking for applicants for next summer now. Oh, very uh, cool. And, and wordfireshop.com is, like I said, where we've got all the signed Dune books, the signed Clockwork books, the signed Dan Shamble books, the signed comics that I do, all kinds of stuff there. Oh, and those... those um. Those audiobooks, the Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Destiny, hmm. I I have a whole bunch of those on MP3 CDs, so I can I can autograph them and send you a CD with Neil Peart reading Clockwork Angels. Or, That's pretty cool. Kevin uh, <laughs> Anderson reading Clockwork Destiny. So that 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 is unique. That is a that is not an item you can get just anywhere nowadays. Uh, TJ, where can people follow you, man? Oh, I am also still on Twitter at TJ underscore Tranchel, T-R-A-N-C-H-E-L-L, and on the web at tjtranchel.net. I'm the easiest person in the world to find because there is only one of me. Yeah, I've never heard that last name before, except for <laughs> with you. Uh, and listeners, if you want to follow us, we are on Twitter, uh, Instagram, TikTok, at uh, Dead Headspace. And um, Kevin, you got any final thoughts? Don't quit your day job. You want to be a writer? <laughs> that's the theme of the episode. Well, I mean, that that's look, I can think a whole lot better if I know that my power is not going to be shut off in the next two days. And <laughs> the, the people don't don't. What am I trying to say? People don't understand how important it is for your imagination to not be stressed about stupid stuff like I can't afford to fill up my car with gas. And writing is like the least reliable way of earning a living because even when you do sell something, it might take them nine months to get you a paycheck or something like that. So, so, uh, or use, use TJ's uh, method of just finding a really wealthy partner and then you can do it that way. I'm not wealthy, but you know, Stable. She keeps the lights on. Well to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, TJ, you got any final thoughts? <laughs> um, I'm not going to quit my day job. <laughs> That's my final thought. <laughs> <laughs> my final thought is that, uh, TJ, I appreciate you being a guest host. Uh, yep. you, you were great. I didn't even have to say jump in anytime you want. Seriously, you did an awesome job with that. And uh, Kevin, thank you for being on the show, man. It means a lot. And we didn't cover really a whole lot in the sense of your career there's just too much for one episode so you gotta come back when brennan's here <laughs> yeah i believe i have a kickstarter running in january or something so we'll push that one Wait, what's that for uh that'll be for a new comedy uh fantasy uh, i did one called the dragon business which came mm. out a few years ago it's sort of like um, dirty rotten scoundrels meets the princess bride it's, it's a gang of <laughs> Uh, it's a gang of con men that sell their services as dragon slayers, but there's no dragon. 
where they put like <laughs> footprints all over the ground and they burn a couple of huts down and and they say, "Hey, King, you got a dragon problem. You better let us kill it for you." And they, that's hilarious. And then, of course, there really is a dragon. And so, anyway, I, I loved I loved that group. It's funny, like the Dan Shamble stuff. And I've always wanted to do a sequel to it. So I'm gonna. My next Kickstarter is going to be in January, and it will be for a Dragon Business sequel. Awesome! That sounds hilarious. Yeah, your Dan Shamble books are funny. Uh, next episode next week will be episode 174. That will be with Cena Palayo, Children of Ooh. Chicago author. Yes, and uh, the guest host for that will be RJ Joseph. Listeners, as always, you have many podcasts to choose from. Thank you for picking us. That's it. That's a wrap. (laughs) All right.